Please listen carefully. This is the House of Speakeasy podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. I'm Erin Cox, executive producer for Seriously Entertaining and your host. House of Speakeasy believes in building bridges through storytelling. We do that by amplifying the voices of writers and introducing them to new audiences. On stage with our monthly storytelling cabarets, in schools with our student workshops and matinees, and on the road with the Speakeasy Bookmobile. In this episode of the podcast themed, Can You Hear Me Now? We share three powerful stories from past performances with the aim of highlighting issues of systemic racism, intolerance, and inequity. These stories were previously recorded at seriously entertaining shows at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. Our first storyteller is Jason Reynolds, writer and the national ambassador of young people's literature. Jason's story is from our May 2017 show themed All Together Now. Here's House of Speakeasy Executive Director Paul Morris to introduce Jason. Jason is the New York Times best-selling author of the Coretta Scott King Honor Book, The Boy in the Black Suit. He is also the co-author of All American Boys with Brendan Kiley. And in fact, 20 minutes before showtime, Jason and Brendan, who's here in the audience tonight, just got an email from the New York Times, their editor at the Times, saying that All American Boys, which was published two years ago, just went back onto the New York Times bestseller list. So I think that deserves a big round of applause. That book is for sale tonight, as well as Jason's other book, entitled Ghost. Uh, Aside from his young adult novels, Jason is the author of the middle grade novels As Brave As You, which won the Kirkus Prize and was nominated for an NAACP Image Award, as well as Ghost, as I mentioned, which is the first of four books in the track series which was selected as a National Book Award finalist. We're really happy to have Jason here with us. Please welcome him to the stage. Happy happy, uh, early Mama's Day to y'all. I uh, my mama, she got a she got a, th- a thickness to her, and and it's weird, right? Because it's it's not what we would normally think of when we say those kinds of things. She doesn't have a, a softness. She has a, a thickness like stone. Um, she was uh, she was born in 1945 in a, a small town outside of Springfield, South Carolina, which means she was born in a small town outside of a small town, which for most of us in this room means she was born nowhere. She's the 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 daughter of a man who's the grandson of a slave. Her mom was half native. Her skin was red like her personality. And my mom grew up walking a hundred acres of land. My grandfather would tell her stories, point to a tree across the land and say, the last time I saw a man lynched was on that tree. And her mom would tell her stories, tell her stories about the times that she was spat on, tell her stories about the times that she would see people on the backs of carts, men and women, black men and black women, they were lovers or married and they're traveling downtown. And when they'd come back from downtown, the black man wouldn't be there. He'd be replaced by a white man, that woman being taken, that man's life being threatened. Her father would tell her stories about his uncle, 
a man who defended himself, defended his family, and his punishment for that was branding a cattle prod to his lips so they were swollen and red as if, as if his face had grown Vienna sausages. Her cousins integrated the school system. Crosses were burned in their front yards. Everybody seemed to be after them. And my mom developed a thickness. Every single story added a layer. Her fingertips swollen and bloody from the cotton. My grandfather's back sort of crooked and curved from the sugar cane. Everything they taught her added a layer. You can't go to the bathroom when you get downtown. We have to go to the bathroom before we leave the house because my grandmother never wanted my mother to know that if she had to go, she'd have to use the colored only toilets. At 10 years old, after the Klan tore down my family's home, they, put, they packed eight people into the back of a Buick and went to Washington, D.C. My grandfather had already left. He had gone to D.C. to find work. The farmlands had all dried up at this point. And for those of you who know anything about the South, in the wintertime, the men would leave. They'd go to Chicago, Detroit. They'd go to D.C. and New York. They'd have to take construction jobs to support the family until the land turned over. And my grandfather left right after this drama goes on with the Klan. And my grandmother, being as red as her personality, say, I'm not about to stay here and try to fend for my children by myself. Packs the car with everything, with all of the children and all of our cousins. My family has nothing but the clothes on their back, and here they are, driving into the, our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. My mother thought she was in New York City because she had never seen the skyline before. She had never seen a street light. Everything was glitz and glamour, and this is D.C. of old. This is Chocolate City. We're talking about the Harlem Renaissance before the Harlem Renaissance got to Harlem. Howard University, U Street, H Street. This is when Washington, D.C. was basically another version of Black Wall Street where you could be black and free, except for the fact that you had white teachers. So when my mother shows up to school, the white teachers say, your daughter is a Southern girl. She fresh up, a country girl. She ain't ready for city education. We got to put her back a grade. And my grandmother, of course, says, not my child. Test her. Let her see what she can do. My mother takes the test, and they skip her ahead of grade. <laughs> right. Now, at 15 years old, my mom graduates from high school, takes a job working in the mailroom of a business. Because back in those days, they were, if you were a woman, you were a secretary, a teacher, or a nurse, or you worked in the mailroom. And if you were a black woman, you were a teacher or the mailroom. Right? So my mom takes a job in the mailroom, and she was happy to have her job. Her family, my, my grandfather told her, you hold on, you got a good job, you stay right there. It was, it was expected that my mother would sit in the mailroom for 40 years. But there was a man who was making a whole lot of noise, a young man, maybe 28, 29 years old, and his name was Dr. King. Now, my mom knew about Dr. King. My mom remembers when my grandfather dropped the Jet magazine on the coffee table, and it was Emmett Till's face on the cover. My mom remembers my grandma weeping over the article, weeping over what, what, had, what had been done to this young man, the mangling of a child for no reason 
at all. So when Dr. King burst onto the scene, my grandfather told her, don't you follow him because he's going to get you killed. We have to know how to behave. You got to make sure you step off the sidewalk. Don't look them in the face. Behave yourself. Be docile and you will live. We don't need to change things. We are safe in our bubble. It is okay. We have enough. Don't follow him. He will kill you. He will have you murdered. He will ruin our lives. And my mom at 16 years old says, well, I hear he's coming to Washington, D.C., and all my cousins in New York and in Philadelphia say, I think we're going to get on buses and come down to D.C. And my mom say, ain't no reason for our cousins to come from out of town and we live in this city. I hear he coming to D.C. He talking about poor people and that's me. He talking about black people and that's me. I think I got to go see what exactly is happening. So my mom gets on a bus, drives as far, rides as far as she can. You couldn't get far back then because the city, the streets were all blocked up. Gets off the bus and walks the rest of the way to the National Mall. This is the March on Washington. She says that no one said a word when Dr. King was speaking. It was silence. She said that there was not even an ounce, a drop of trash on the ground. No litter, no paper wrappings. Nothing was left behind. And when she went back to the post office, when she went back to her, her mailroom job for this company, she said she knew immediately at 16 years old that she would not stay in the mailroom, that maybe there was something else in her that could work her way up the ladder, that maybe she was able to do the things that she really, really wanted to do. And so over the course of two years, she eventually gets promoted to clerk. But when you get promoted to clerk, now you're working with white women that you never had to work with before, and they are not happy she's there. So every time she does the work, they undo it, and she has to come back the next day and do it again. She does it again, and they undo it, and she has to come back to work the next day and do it again. You got to work twice as hard to get half as much she taught me. You got to work twice as hard. You got to double down because they're going to undo it, and you have to do it again, and you got to smile the whole time. You got to let them know that it's okay that they're trying to sabotage you, that you're better than that because you're better than them, but you can't tell them you better than them. You got to just keep doing it. And eventually, all the other clerks quit. And my mother is promoted. Now she's giving lectures, talking to the clients. She's selling this thing, talking to the clients. And guess who hates her now? The white man, her boss. Upset because the clients say, hey, hey, we like you and we know, how you know, we know you know how to do your thing, but we want Isabel to come. We want to hear her do it. The black men would show up and say, we're just proud to see her. We want her to tell us what you got to sell us. We want her to do it. And so instead of him firing her because he needed her so much, he just quit giving the lectures. He just let her do it him, herself. You take care of it. Now, in the midst of all this, my mom is getting a bachelor's degree, taking one class at a time, putting herself through school. And she has children. Here I am, my mom, that thickness now thicker than ever. She'd seen enough. The pain had caused calluses. So when she raised her kids, she raised us to be distrustful. Boy, you got to work twice as hard to get half as much. You got to work four times as hard just to break even. You got to work six times as hard just to get a little bit. Don't trust nobody. Don't even if they smile. If they smile at you, you see their smile. But don't be fooled. You focus on their fangs. You keep them at arm's distance. You keep them at the end of your fingertips. And you better keep your nails as long as possible. Don't you ever trust them, son. Don't you? I've seen it. I've seen it too many times. Your granddaddy was spat on. Your grandmama was spat on. They tried to kill us. They tried to kill our family just because we had a little bit of land, just because we could do a little bit more. And for me, didn't really make much sense. I mean, I understood it, but I didn't. I mean, it's, it's weird to hear your mama tell you you can be anything you want except what you really want to be. That you can, you can be unapologetic as long as you don't make no mistakes. 
Boy, brush your hair before you leave this house. You don't want them thinking that you ain't never been nowhere. Better learn how to use a fork and a knife and you better speak proper English. You don't want them thinking you an animal. You don't want them thinking that you ain't got no home training. They need to know that you are trained. You are trained. We are all trained, son. We, we got to be if you want to live, kid. But you can say what you want to say in the house. You can do what you want to do in the house. But of course, I got my grandmama personality. So imagine my mother's surprise when I got older and was like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and be a writer because I got something to say. And imagine my mother's surprise when I went to her one day and said, hey, so I'm working on this book. And it's about police brutality. Something that we had dealt with our whole lives. Grew up in a neighborhood where we watched our friends get slammed in the hoods of cars. Watched our friends get their teeth kicked in. Grew up in a household gathered around the kitchen table watching the Rodney King beating on television. Grew up hearing the stories of my mom and my grandparents and my uncles and aunties. And so I say, Mama, I want to write a book about police brutality. And the first thing my mother says to me in 2014 is, I don't think that's a good idea because what if they come for you? My mother at 70 years old still believed that there were lynch mobs that my life would be in jeopardy, that my life would be in danger if I decided to write a story about the thing that is tearing my neighborhood apart. And then I had the nerve to say, oh, don't worry about it because I'm writing it with a friend. And she says, well, who is this friend? And I say, you know the dude, Brendan, I've been working with all the time. I've been doing the tour with, you know, white boy. And she says, white boy? And I said, yeah, white boy. He's from Boston. She says, Boston? And I said, yeah, Boston. I said, do you know what they do to us in Boston? And I said, well, I said, well, no, he's all right. I, 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 think, I think he's all right. And so Brendan and I sit down and we write this book. The book comes out. And like protocol, I always send my mother the first book. Always. First book goes to my mom. The publishers know. Everybody knows. You send the first book to Jason's mother. <laughs> my mother reads the book. and Well, first I, I call her and, and she says, well, I got your little book in the mail. <laughs> because, because she's thick like that, right? Like stone. Right? I got your little book in the mail. I said, oh, yeah? She said, yeah, I started reading it. I said, well, what you think? She said, well, first I got a question. So let me get it straight. Did you, did you write all of like, the black boys section? Or did Brendan write some of the black boys section? And I was like, no, 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 no. I wrote all the black boys. And she said, oh, because I was getting ready to say, you write about Brendan. He really does understand a lot about black culture. He gets it, right? Like, and I said, no, 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 it's me. I wrote all the black parts. And Brendan wrote, sort of the, he, he wrote all the white parts. And, and, and that's, that's the whole point. And I'm like, Ma, like, that's the point of the book, right? You know? And she said, OK, OK, OK. Well, I'm going to keep reading it. And I'll let you know what I think later. And then a week goes by. And my phone rings. And and it's my mom. And she said, I finished your little book. <laughs> and I said, all right, what you think? And my mom is very hard on me because, you know, twice as hard. And she said, I just want you to know that I'm just so proud of Brendan. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's funny. It's such an interesting thing because it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing because in about five seconds, when your laughter subsides, 
You'll think about it. What a powerful thing. She was 71 years old. And after 50, 60 years of being thick, a callus that comes from pain that many of us will never know, a story, one story, chipped a little away, made just a, just a, just a spot of that thick, that thickness like stone, just a spot of it was made slightly more soft. Happy Mother's Day, y'all. Thank you, Jason. Our next storyteller is Kashana Colley, writer for the upcoming Fox comedy The Great North and contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. Kashana's stories from our May 2018 show themed No Man's Land. Here is House of Speakeasy co-founder Amanda Foreman to introduce Kashana. Kashana Colley, who is a true Renaissance woman. She has been a lawyer. She has been a writer for The Daily Show. She is currently a contributing uh, op-ed writer for The New York Times. And she is about to be a novelist because I am told that her agent (laughs) is in the audience and wants to know how the novel is coming on. It's nearly finished. <laughs> I have on good authority. So, what does Kashana say about her own writing? This is her in her own words. I get inspiration from Brooklyn. By the way, this is not her in her own accent. Just <laughs> and the news, black people, rabbit holes of research that I go down after reading good books and events I still think of years after they happened. Ladies and gentlemen, Kashana Cawley. I'm a wanderer. Um, So I'm going to tell a story about two no-man's lands um, that are linked in my mind, although they will almost certainly not be linked in yours, and how much they've kind of informed a lot of my writing. Um, The first one is going to sound deceptively fun, but it was not. In the turn of the millennium, I was a college DJ. And I know that sounds fun, but this wasn't. We... Me and my two co-hosts, we got up every Saturday from 10 a.m. to noon instead of sleeping in like normal hungover people do. We would hungoverly drag ourselves to the radio station and put on 80s music. And this was the turn of the millennium, so this was a good five minutes before 80s music was cool again, so no one cared. Like, no one. Like, the 80s were huge. Five years afterwards, I moved here and everyone was throwing 80s revival parties, but at the time, nothing. Um... Also, we were internet radio. It, this was about five, minute, five years out from a time when anyone knew what internet radio was and about 10 years before anyone listened to internet radio regularly. And so no one knew what we were and then therefore they did not care. And so we were the uncoolest DJs in what planet Earth has ever kicked out. And yet we were devoted anyway. We would come in every Saturday, quarter to 10, and it was supposed to be 80s music, but our first song was Rock Lobster by the B-52s, which came out... <laughs> 
1978, but as I will go into detail later, we had no listenership, so we said, oh, you know, let's go have fun, even if fun is 1978 instead of the 80s. We, on our motherboard, like the control system of a radio station, you, we could actually, we had this horrible little tracking device that tracked our audience, like the size of it. And so every morning, at, every Saturday morning at 10, we would go in there and it would just blink three, three, <laughs> three. And that meant that exactly three people were listening to us. On a particularly rough Saturday, we get in hungover, you know, and it's blinking two, two, two at us. And we're like, Jesus, you know, did we do something? Like, is this our fault? And because three people was a big audience and two people was nothing, we were like, well, you know, let's just throw all caution to the wind here. Let's do whatever we want since we're down to two people and we're free now. And so I started telling this story about the edible underwear I bought for my boyfriend at the time. Now, if you don't know what edible underwear is, it's exactly like what it sounds like. It's a fruit roll-up for your crotch. And I've never eaten it off anybody because it turns out that sometimes you're just not that daring, even when you think you are. And so I was telling this story about how I had no idea what it was and I just learned what it was and it was a fruit roll-up for your crotch, like on the air, because, you know, like two people, right? And it goes down to one, one, one. And we're just like, oh, whatever, you know, we're free now. And so we leave the station and I get this phone call immediately. And I had this voice over the phone, why the hell are you telling stories about edible underwear? It's my mom. <laughs> she was our only listener that afternoon. I think of that radio gig as a no man's land because there was no one out there listening to us, you know? Like, we wanted this listenership so bad and it did not happen. Right after college, I moved 70 miles east to no man land number two. Um, well, it was in the middle. The no-man land that I crossed was the north side of Milwaukee. I went to go live on the east side. Now, the north side of Milwaukee is not a no-man's land in the traditional sense. It has people in it. But no one leaves the north side or goes in very much for reasons that I will explain in a little bit. And um, I was the only person on earth that has ever been excited to move to Milwaukee. I was like... This is going to be the most fun time ever. It's not just going to be beer and cheese and like fun hallucinations about awesomeness of cheese and whatever. It's genuinely going to be a party. And the reason why is because I grew up as a black person in a very white town and Milwaukee is about 45% black. So I'm like, well, the streets are going to run gold with hair grease and I'm going to turn on the tap and it's just going to pour great sweet potatoes. And this is going to be great despite the fact that everyone in my life was like, you know what, Milwaukee actually sucks including the black people. And I was like, you're wrong. It's going to be great for me. You know, I'm going to be the only person who loves it. And so I joined this AmeriCorps program. And four days a week, we all went out to work for nonprofits and try to improve Milwaukee in various regards that most people like to ignore. And on Fridays, we got to go back to the AmeriCorps office. I forget what the actual name of Fridays was, you know, like, it, like you know, Fridays and chill or whatever. But what it actually ended up being because... Um, we were all eight, between 18 and 30 years of age, and they encouraged us to talk about anything, even if that meant that we would have a fight with the other people that we worked with because it was AmeriCorps and feelings were okay. <laughs> so I ended up referring to Fridays as, you know, talk about what you want to, especially if it offends people. <laughs> Days. 
And so one in, one of those days, I came in and sat down, and one of the other black AmeriCorps people just looked at me, and she was just like, you know what? I can't stand you because you're light-skinned and you're from Madison, which means you're rich. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I know we can talk about anything that we want to, but surely this is a limit, right? We're at, we're at work. <laughs> and I look around, I'm like, obviously someone's going to defend me. You can't just say ridiculous statements at work, you know? You know? And no one did because they wanted to see us have a fight because it was, let's just see if anyone has a fight day. It was Friday. And um, I was like, look, I count my pennies at the grocery store, just like all of you, and everybody's nothing, just like nothing. But you know what? Um, it took me 10 years later to realize that she was right, actually, um, that even if you grew up working class in Madison like I did, that has nothing whatsoever to do with the standards by which people grow up in Milwaukee. The north side of Milwaukee, nobody really knows about because I think everyone thinks of Milwaukee as Laverne and Shirley or that 70s show, even though it's set like 40 miles south of there or something like that. And so what it is is this neighborhood where nobody goes in and nobody goes out. The crime rate is kind of bad. I mean, you can buy a house there for $25,000, but it will probably get robbed a lot, maybe by crackheads. In most of America, the 80s was the crack era. But in Milwaukee, turn of the millennium, it was still going strong. I worked at a law office four days a week, and a lot the other lawyers in the office would visit crack houses like all the time and come back with the play-by-play. -play. This is what crack is like, and this is what a crack house is like. Um, it had gone through a period of school choice, which uh, some people are trying to expand to the rest of the country. And in Milwaukee, what that meant was I met somebody who was the valedictorian of her high school, and she had a 1.89 GPA. And that was pretty common. Um, like, you could just go to school for four years and learn virtually nothing, and they'd spit out a number, and have, they'd rank you. And it would mean nothing, because you can't, like, go to college with that, and nobody, like, looks at that on a resume or whatever if you have to list your GPA and is impressed. But she would list it anyway. She would be like, you know, I'm proud of this. Um, yeah, they don't deliver pizza to people on the north side because they're afraid. They don't pick up their garbage because they're afraid. So these folks aren't getting basic services. In that sense, it truly is a no man's land. And I spent a lot of my time while I lived in Milwaukee and for the 10 years afterwards wondering why nobody ever told this story to people, why nobody knew anything about Milwaukee. And utterly, at the end, I ended up comparing it in a way to working at the radio station. I'm just like, nobody's listening. Um, I feel lucky now in the sense that a lot of times I get to write for places where people read your stuff. Like, sometimes I'm a columnist at the New York Times and people will actually read you. And the nice thing about places like the Times is you can pick these stories that are kind of no man's landy, that you're not sure that people are paying attention to. And you can dig up the history of them and people will listen to you, and that's great. The reason why Milwaukee, the north side, is like that, in my opinion, is because it doesn't have a black middle class. And that's because the Great Migration happened late in Milwaukee. It happened in the 60s instead of the 40s, like everywhere else. So when black people came up from the south, um, there were no good union jobs. There were no good factory jobs, really. Like Everybody had started to shift to retail and temp work, like they have across the country generally. But in Milwaukee, that happened earlier, and it kind of shut people out. And so everybody went to go live on the north side. It's the second most segregated city in the United States. And so they got to you know, work jobs and get fired and hope that things would get better someday, even though they didn't. The most popular topic at Milwaukee like weekend drinking extravaganzas was actually how to escape. We would do things like fantasize about like kind of OK neighborhoods in Chicago.
Because they had to be better than Milwaukee, right? Like, you had to be able to get out and escape to something worth escaping to. And, um, yeah, but just, I guess, what those two No Man's Land taught me were just, in my opinion, the, some of the best writing is done from No Man's Lands, like, from places that people are ignoring or are not being listened to, or just parts, points of view that people are not taking up in mass. No one talks about the black people of Milwaukee, so I write about them all the time. Um, sometimes people don't talk about, I wrote a, a story about the accent that I don't have. Um, being from Wisconsin, <laughs> which is also a long, ugly, gray migration story about sometimes people not wanting to sound like other people, whether consciously or subconsciously. Um, and I, coming from a group that did not want to sound like the dominant, you guys know the Chicago, the, the birth. Um, if you haven't noticed, black people never sound like that from the Midwest. <laughs> it's an accent that like 14 million people have. It is 100% one of our strongest national accents. But I don't know, let's say another 13 million people who live in those same regions don't have it. <laughs> so we're never going to go up to the grocery store and just be like, I'd like a bag, please. <laughs> and living in Milwaukee, it was kind of why I wanted to dig in there to see why I didn't have this accent, to understand why there were certain angles of stories that were not being told. So, thanks. Thank you, Kashana. Our final storyteller is James Foreman Jr., writer and professor at Yale Law School. James's stories from our December 2017 show themed Caught in the Act. Here is House of Speakeasy co-founder Lucas Whitman to introduce James. Our next speaker is James Foreman Jr., who's a, a national authority on criminal justice and race. He's worked as a law clerk for Sandra Day O'Connor. He was a public defender in Washington, D.C. for a number of years. He started an amazing charter school in Washington that works with um, dropouts and youth who've been arrested. And he's now teaching at Yale Law School. And he's the author of a book called Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America, which was just named um, this week as one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times. And, it's an <laughs> and James has written, I draw heavily on a school of legal thinking called critical race theory, especially its invitation to weave personal narrative into legal and policy arguments. James Foreman. Some of you may have heard by now that this country locks up more of its citizens than any other country on earth. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. I've been working for a fair criminal system for most of my adult life. And I'm glad to report that in recent years, more and more people are coming to see the profound crisis that is our court system our policing, and our prison systems. But unfortunately, many of the efforts to reform those systems have focused on one category of people and one category only. Nonviolent offenders, typically referred to as drug offenders, people who buy, sell, or use drugs. And in this view, those individuals deserve second chances. They deserve our compassion. But violent offenders, and that includes people who commit robbery, committed 
an assault, burglary, possessed a gun, those people, they deserve what they get. President Obama, who did more on criminal justice reform than any other president in the last 50 years, he unfortunately reinforced this distinction all the time. Drug offenders, he would say, they deserve mercy. But if you commit a violent crime, no sympathy for you. You belong in jail. One problem that with this perspective is math. 20% of the people in our prisons and jails in this country have committed a drug offense. So that means that if tonight we went out and went to every prison and every jail in America and we opened every jail cell for anybody who had committed a drug offense, tomorrow morning when we wake up, we'd still have the nation's, lar the world's largest prison system. So who is in prison? About 50% of people have committed crimes that we label and identify as violent crimes. So we're not going to solve the human rights crisis that is mass incarceration until we're willing to tackle that group, that 50%. But it's more than a math problem. It's also a moral issue. I became aware of the moral issue when I met a young man who I'll call Dante. I was a public defender in Washington, D.C. in the 1990s, and Dante was my juvenile client. He was caught in the act, caught in the act of committing a robbery. It was a frigid January D.C. night on 14th Street in the Columbia Heights neighborhood. And Dante, with a knife in his pocket, walked up to a man at a bus stop. Dante and the man that he walked up to were both African American. And Dante said, give it up. Give it up or I'll cut you. The man, scared, took all he had, $12, threw it out, and ran. Dante ran the other way. But what Dante didn't know is that across the street, at a grocery store, somebody was watching what was happening. They summoned a security officer. The security officer gave chase after Dante, and the security officer was fast, faster than Dante, caught him, held him for the police. When the police arrived, they found $12, the exact amount of money the man said that he had lost, and they found a knife in Dante's pocket. Dante gave a full statement, a full confession that night to the police. And at the end of which he said, I'm sorry, please tell the man, I'm sorry. Now, if this were a movie, I would report to you that I discovered a witness who showed that Dante was framed and actually innocent. Or I filed a brilliant legal motion that upended the government's case. But in the miracle-free real world of being a public defender, Dante was guilty, the evidence was overwhelming, and he would have to plead guilty. So I began to do what I needed to do as his lawyer, which was in essence to become a social worker, to try to find a program, something that would meet his needs, something short of incarceration that I could persuade the judge to impose. 
That meant I had to look into his background. And when I looked into his background, as with so many of my clients, I found a lot of pain and trauma. Dante's mother had been a drug addict, hadn't gotten treatment. She wasn't able to provide. So the streets, in many ways, raised her son. The school system had misread flags, hadn't identified learning disabilities that would have made Dante eligible for special services. And the robbery, Dante had been humiliated by a group, a little gang in his neighborhood, humiliated by a group of people who then later offered him protection, offered him fellowship if he committed the robbery. So I took all this information and I started calling programs around the city, sharing with them the promise and the potential of this young man. Because he did have potential. In particular, he was amazing with his hands as a woodworker and a sculptor. I went to his room and there were these half-finished and fully-finished pieces of woodwork. He had received very little training, but he had a lot of talent. I had a letter from a, his woodshop instructor attesting to this. And I would tell this story, and people would listen, and then at the end, the representatives of the program would say, now tell me what he's charged with. What's he going to plead guilty to? I said armed robbery. They said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, counselor. We don't work with violent offenders. Nonviolent offenders only at this program. Eventually, not long before sentencing, Dante's mother actually, she's the one that found the program. She was in recovery, and in her group, she came across somebody who knew a pastor, a Pentecostal storefront church, Southeast DC, and he was starting a program. It wasn't official, they didn't even have any letterhead. But he wanted to work with young men, and he himself, this pastor Gaffney, was good with, with his hands, and he wanted to work with woodworking, and he also wanted to do mentoring and life skills. So he accepted Dante into the program. But here was the thing. I still had to persuade the judge. And it was a tough judge, and the prosecutor was asking for a prison sentence. And this was a serious offense, armed robbery. So I knew, you know, Pastor Gaffney or not, it was unlikely to happen. So I did the one thing I had left, and it was a long shot, but I wanted to, I had to go talk to the man that Dante robbed. I call him Mr. Thomas. And I wanted him to know Dante's whole story. See, he only knew 12 seconds at the bus stop. I wanted him to know the rest. I go up to his door, I knock on the door, and as a public defender, you, people don't want somebody knocking, hi, I represent the person who robbed you. Great, okay, <laughs> next. But he let me in, and I told the story. I told him about Dante. And at the end, I made my pitch, would he go along with the program? And he said he would have to think about it, that he would let me know in court. Court date was a couple weeks later. And I had a lot of cases, too many cases, but I thought about Dante's case almost every day in that two weeks. And then on the morning of the court hearing, I show up 
in the hallway outside of the courtroom, and one of the first people, people I see is Mr. Thomas in the black suit. And I walk up to him. Before I can open my mouth, he thrusts two pieces of crumpled paper at me. And I take them, and I look at them, and I recognize these papers. One of them was the confession that Dante had given. I had shared that with Mr. Thomas. I want him to see that Dante had apologized on the night of before he even knew his lawyer. And then there was a longer apology letter that he had written with my assistance. And thrusting these crumpled papers at me, Mr. Thomas said, you asked me to forgive your client. He said, I can't do that. But I am trying. And I can go along with that idea you have. I hustled into court as fast as I could. The judge was surprised. The prosecutor was pissed. But Mr. Thomas held up. He stood by his position that he supported this idea. And the judge, to his credit, imposed that sentence and put Dante on probation and let him participate in the program. And every time I think of our criminal justice system, I always ask myself, what if we treated cases the way Mr. Thomas treated that case? What if we came to understand that justice requires accountability, but not vengeance? What if we came to see that equal protection under the law, including equal protection for African-American victims of crime, so long denied it in our court system, doesn't have to mean the longest possible prison sentence in the harshest available conditions? What if we strove for compassion, for mercy, for forgiveness, and not just in cases involving nonviolence? Doing this will require policy changes. It will mean funding public defender's offices so that lawyers have the resources to go out and find their client's stories and then tell them in court. It will require getting rid of mandatory minimums so that judges have the ability to impose a tailored, individualized sentence. It will require getting rid of the grotesque, unaffordable cash bail system we have in this country that criminalizes poverty. Shout out to Bronx Freedom Fund, Brooklyn Community Bail Fund organizations right here in this city that are working on those issues. But it's not just policy changes, it's also, also personal. Because remember, Dante got his second chance because Mr. Thomas made the personal decision to not judge him entirely by the 12 seconds at the bus stop. He got his second chance because Pastor Gaffney, when he started a program for struggling teens, he decided, unlike all the other programs in the city, yeah, I'll take people that committed crimes of violence. And as Americans, we have to now ask ourselves, what are we prepared to personally do in our sphere of influence, in the domains that we control, to try to respond to mass incarceration? As employers, that means we can hire people who have criminal convictions. At universities, that means we can admit returning citizens who are trying to continue their education. As citizens, as voters, that means that all of us can demand that our elected officials, our prosecutors, our state legislatures, 
Most policies made at the state level. We can demand that those individuals enact real, robust, meaningful criminal justice reform. Now, when I talk about Dante, sometimes the first time I told his story, somebody said, well, I understand why we're compassionate in his case because of his story. But here's the thing. Everybody's more than the label. Everybody has a story. I just happened to tell you Dante's. His sentencing was over 10 years ago. And I lost track of him in the criminal system. You lose track of the people who don't get rearrested. A couple years ago, I was walking past a construction site in DC outside of the metro. And I heard a voice, Mr. Foreman. And I looked up, and it took a while because it had been a while, but filled out, goatee, it was Dante. He had a hard hat on. He came down. And I, I'm gonna tell, I wanted to go sit down, have lunch. As a public defender, we relish these moments of connection with our clients that are succeeding. But of course, from his perspective, first of all, he was at work. <laughs> Second of all, I reminded him of a low point in his life. So he wanted to keep it short. But he gave me the brief outlines. He told me that it had been hard. Pastor Gaffney was tough. He almost kicked him out of the program a couple times. But he made it through. He got his GED. He eventually got a job, first part-time and then full-time, working on a construction team. He had not been rearrested. And he had a seven-year-old son who he was raising with the kind of care and concern and discipline that he had not received. And as I got ready to go, I said to him, I said, you know, I often think about Mr. Thomas and that moment of forgiveness. And he said, me too. Me too. And he went back to work. Thank you. Thank you, James. And thank you to all of the writers for participating in this episode of the House of Speakeasy podcast. To learn more about House of Speakeasy's work with writers and reading communities, visit our website at houseofspeakeasy.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter, become a member, and find out how you can support our nonprofit mission. Thank you for listening.